And it kind of just sort of, I'm not even sure, it just kind of started growing. And then I remember when people started making reels and I was like, oh, this might be a fun way to kind of talk about disability issues. I'm sorry, the train just went past my house really loud. So I don't know if that just, um, if you got that beeping. But yeah, it was kind of just, it just seemed to happen. And I think obviously with the pandemic and people seeming to be at home and online a lot more, um, it just kind of grew and grew really. Welcome to another season of the Disabled Debrief Podcast with Conscious Being Magazine. I'm your host, Lydia Wilkins, and through these conversations, we will be talking about and dismantling topics such as being disabled and parenthood, finding self-love as an activist, and so much more. Our guest today is Nina Tame, who you may have seen on Instagram, for example. Nina has reached something of an infamy, such as with learning about disability with me and get ready with me videos. Nina is a super nice human being and has also gone into weighty topics such as sexism, eugenics and so much more. As a trigger warning for this episode, there are some quite dark conversation topics, so listeners may want to exercise caution. As an opening question, how did you get started out as a content creator? See, I've been on Instagram for about, I don't know, 11 years. And I just used to kind of post, I don't know, pictures of the kids or my cats or whatever else. And then um, about sort of three years ago, maybe four years ago now, I've got like no concept of time anymore. It's all like rolled into one. But I think it was about four years ago, I kind of tentatively started talking about disability stuff sort of around the same time that I kind of discovered the disabled community on Instagram as well and it kind of just sort of I'm not even sure it just kind of started growing and then I remember when people started making reels and I was like oh this might be a fun way to kind of talk about disability issues I'm sorry the train just went past my house really loud so I don't know if that just um if you got that beeping but yeah it was kind of just it just seemed to happen and I think obviously with the pandemic and people seeming to be at home and online a lot more um it just kind of grew and grew really it's really interesting that you've picked up in terms of needing and wanting a community that wasn't there very often when talking to other content creators they have expressed that the reason that they literally started to create content was for the way in which to create a community. I was wondering, what did you think about that and why? See, mine kind of, I guess, went the other way. Like, I never really spoke about disability and um, not in the way I do now anyway, because it took me, although I was born disabled, it took me, like, until literally sort of six, seven years ago to start kind of accepting it and unpicking it all and learning about ableism and everything else. So for me, it was kind of seeing, sort of stumbling upon this kind of disabled community that I'd never had before, Um, excuse me, and seeing how like vibrant and amazing and like people dressed up with their mobility aids proudly on show. And it just sort of gave me the confidence to think, oh, okay, so I can put myself out there as well like that. Um, so yeah, it kind of encouraged me to do it. Yeah, I guess I think I had kind of two, a couple of big turning points. So I was born with spina bifida. Um, 
And I went on to kind of, you know, hit all the usual milestones, you know, I could sit up, I could crawl, and then I could walk like a little bit later, but I still sort of did that. And then it wasn't until my teenage years, and I was at secondary school that it really started to flare up. And I would be sort of using mobility aids, I had sort of stints in a wheelchair, and I hated it. Um, you know, I think secondary school, some people are lucky and have a lovely time, um, but I didn't, I really didn't like it. Uh, people were just, yeah, not great. So I was very much aware that I was different. But I wanted to keep that difference kind of when I could, when I had sort of periods of not using mobility aids, I could pretty much sort of hide my disability. And that's what I tried to do as much as possible. But I never sort of showed the lump on my back. Um, like I've got sort of a limb difference um, in my feet and I never showed that. So it was very much, it was all kept hidden. And then I, I've got four children and my third son was born eight years ago and he was born with spina bifida like me. And it just, it looked beautiful on him. Every, you know, I loved the lump on his back as much as I did the freckles on his face and it was such a turning point and such a realization that I never ever want him to dislike a part of himself or to think a part of himself is wrong or gross. Um, thought he can never hear that like coming from me. I can never describe my body in that way. Um, so it was just, it was a real kind of like, if it looks beautiful on him, then it must be beautiful on me too. So that kind of started my transition, but I sort of called us oh, cringe when I say this, but I still thought disabled was a bad, gross thing. And I used to refer to us as differently abled, um, which makes me want to vomit now. Um, and then as he sort of got older, I sort of was losing my mobility more and more. Um, and as then when he started school, he started dealing with all the questions, all the intrusive questions. And again, those were something that I'd always answered when I had a walking stick. If somebody come up to me and said, what have you done? I would tell them because I just thought that you had to. And then he would come back from school so deflated that somebody else had asked him. Um, and then sort of I started to empower him to say, actually, you know what, you don't have to answer. Um, and neither do I. And it was kind of around this sort of time is when I kind of found the disabled community. I learned about the social model of disability, which um, I know not everybody relates to, but that felt really sort of it, um, really kind of helped me. And I think that was then my kind of real turning point of just learning, like learning about disability, learning about ableism, suddenly unpicking kind of, you know, I mean, I'm 41 now and this was like, yeah, about sort of six, about five years ago, um, just unpicking everything. Just to reiterate, what you have just said about your son was just absolutely beautiful. Was it that that inspired the content around parenting and disability? It's It's completely different from very often we see and we talk about disabled children in kind of a pitiful lens, but this is, that's just beautiful. And that is the way, the way that you have just talked about your son is the way that we should be talking about disability. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's not something that, you know, you really see, you don't often see, um, you know, visibly disabled parents in adverts or in the media or or anywhere else and 
you know, and there's so much kind of, you know, when we look at eugenics and <laughs> going into eugenics now, but when we look at that and the way disabled people are viewed and, and disabled people historically and still now, it's always been this kind of thing, well, they shouldn't breed um, because of, you know, what if they pass it on? And, and, you know, we're kind of worst case scenario. I'm a disabled person and my son has my disability. And, um, you know, I do kind of feel that judgment sometimes. Like when we, um, before I used a wheelchair, I used to have exactly the same leg brace as what my son wears. And when we'd be going along, I, I could kind of, you could just sort of see people checking us out and, and that kind of judgment. So I feel like there's, you know, of all the ableism I ever experienced, I kind of feel it the most in medical settings and in sort of parental settings, because there's this sort of notion that, oh, well, you know, if you're disabled and you need extra care, you can't possibly be capable of giving care, which is just so ridiculous. Um, and I think, you know, I've spoke to other disabled people about this. There's often a lot of kind of, um, you're not almost allowed to enjoy your pregnancy because there's always other people, you know, saying, well, you know, what if you pass it on or what if this happens or what if that happens? And there's just sort of a lot of doom and gloom. And it, it makes me really sort of sad for pregnant people now and in the future, you know, pregnant disabled people who don't, you know, who are going to experience that and who don't sort of, who, you know, who kind of get the joy of, of their pregnancy robbed from them. And I think they are just underestimated all the time. Whereas I know so many different disabled parents with different disabilities and they're just all amazing parents. Just in listening to your answer, it's just occurred to me that you don't see the representation of disability and pregnancy ever combined together. No, the only time I've seen like a, a, a disabled pregnant person um, in a wheelchair, for example, is the people that I follow on Instagram. Um, I've never seen that depicted sort of anywhere you know and I've got four kids so I've been in many clinical settings throughout pregnancies and everything else and I've never seen you know a pregnant person with a walking stick or you know it's yeah it's sort of disabled people are very much erased out of that conversation. I wanted to also take you back a little bit further you've mentioned secondary school you're a trained counsellor aren't you? Yes I am. When it comes to the topic of disability, disability and mental health are rarely talked about when together. We don't talk about how, for example, that there is a mental health crisis and we don't consider the that there may be potential in terms of disabled people and experiencing mental health issues, for example. How did you begin as a counsellor? How did you start out? Um. So I did my... God, this, so I would have been, I think it was about 13, 14 years ago, I did my training because um, it was just something that interests me. And I always knew I wanted to sort of work in a sort of setting where I was able to help other people. I originally wanted to be like a, a children's counsellor. I'd always, I'd, um, you know, I'd fancied myself as a teacher for a little bit. I'd always just really got on with kids. So I'd originally started out to do it as like a counsellor for kids. And then I sort of did my training and ended up with my own private practice. And at this time I wasn't using any kind of mobility aids and disability just wasn't even in my, you know, we didn't touch on it in training at all. Um, and then I ended up sort of leaving my private practice and working in an edu educational setting, supporting 
adults with lived experience of mental health. Um, and then I had my son who I spoke about who had spina bifida as well. And, and I just sort of didn't go back to it for a long while. And then I sort of started, I sort of realized how sort of lacking mental health support is for disabled people because even down to if you go on one of the big kind of counseling search sites there's like a, a counseling directory is one you know and you're typing what you're looking for and all of these listings have a box to tick for example whether somebody's office is wheelchair accessible now i couldn't find anybody who'd even bothered to tick that box on there and wow. there is such a yeah there is a huge lacking of knowledge um, for therapists around disability. And, you know, so for example, if like a non-disabled person went, this is very like a rubbish example, but we're going to go with it. If a non-disabled person went to a therapist and said, you know, I feel really anxious every time I'm entering a room full of people, it's likely that the therapist could do, for example, some CBT and look at those thoughts and say, well, they're irrational and, you know, you've got no reason to feel like that, blah, 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 blah. But when you are somebody who is marginalised, that sort of anxiety of existing in the world, knowing you know, your experience of people staring or saying things or being outright hateful. It's very real, rational anxiety. Um, and I think that is something that therapists don't always understand um, is how much the kind just living as a disabled person within this sort of ableist system, especially with all like the eugenics of the last couple of years and how even in like polite society now, it's completely acceptable to sort of openly talk about how, well, you know, it's only gonna affect the vulnerable. Like it's, it's so much and I think, yeah, but if you were to sort of go to just, you know, there's a lot of therapists and counselors who aren't gonna understand that experience um, because they've not been taught about that experience. So I think that, yeah, there is just a huge, gross kind of lack of support for disabled people who have to not only deal with the kind of grief of, you know, if you're somebody who's lost your mobility or, or whatever else, you know, the kind of grief that can happen around our bodies and our minds and the way they work, but also just dealing with everything else that society kind of throws us and there's no support for it. You've just described giving the benefit of your experience in terms of your work as a counsellor and using that, what would be your advice? What, give advice to uh, like to therapists or to like give advice to who? To other therapists, yeah. I think all therapists should have training around, um, you know, working with people who are from a marginalised identity. And if we're, you know, we're talking about disability, um, obviously, which we are in particular, then, you know, therapists should have training around that. You know, they should have a disabled person, you know, because there are lots of, dis there are disabled therapists that exist. Um, and, you know, I think, yeah, therapists should have training around disability and around um, access and making sure that, you know, <laughs> so I'm going back and forth when you go to see a therapist they'll often you know they'll talk about how the session works and they'll put boundaries in place and everything else but you've got things like I, I know a few different therapists that said well if you cancel at the last minute you'll still have to pay 
um, because you know it'd be waste, and that's quite a common practice. And I think it's that's a really ableist practice because for a lot of disabled sick sick people, you know, they might wake up on the morning of their therapy and they just cannot do it because they're not feeling well or whatever else. So you know, they shouldn't get penalised for that. Um, yeah, I just think that you know I've, I've got um, you know peers who are autistic and they need to when they're in a session they can't just go in and sit down and be still and just launch into it you know there's things that would make them feel more comfortable to do that so I think therapists just have to have an awareness of you know of differences of different disabilities and to be able to kind of incorporate that at the beginning of a session when they're meeting somebody to make that person feel safe and to make that person feel that their access needs are being met. This episode of the Disabled Debrief podcast is sponsored by Passenger Assistance app. Taking the time and fuss out of requesting assistance when travelling by train, a few simple taps will create your own profile where all your access needs will be stored. This will be sent straight to the train operator who will arrange assistance for you and you'll receive updates on the app and via email too. You can now download the app on Android and iOS now through passengerassistance.com. Yeah, I mean, it's just sort of, I think it's probably a bit, it reminds me of kind of glasses because glasses, I know they can still be stigmatized, but in general, they're not, you know, um, but yeah. years ago, probably if somebody saw somebody with glasses when they weren't, you know, back in the 50s or the 40s, maybe they would have made a comment. Um, whereas nowadays, people don't tend to pass people in the street wearing glasses and make a comment about them. But I can guarantee, you know, we live just sort of in a very white suburban um, area with sort of an older kind of population and I find it's like especially like middle-aged men they just can't help themselves so if I'm just out you know with the dog or taking the kids to school whatever else they just have to make a comment like you know oh my speed bumps you got a license for that blah 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 um and I never ever find it funny I've not laughed not once um and it's, you know, it's that thing of when you're hearing it all the time. And even if I'm out with Jace, like we were out from, I think we went to some gardens last year for my birthday and passed some old dude. And then he was just like, oh, can I sit on your lap? And I was like, oh, that's disgusting. Like they're just, yeah, it's, it's so boring because I just sort of want to go about my day. Um, and it's, you know, it's just the equivalent. People might as well just stop and point at me and just say disabled. Like it's, it's just ridiculous. To play devil's advocate, sometimes I wonder if responses to someone in a wheelchair come from a place of ignorance. So, and by that, I mean, I very often, I get the impression that disability causes discomfort for non-disabled people for some reason. Absolutely. I think a survey done by Scope said that one in four people would feel uncomfortable talking to a disabled person. Um, and I'm laughing, even though it's not funny, because it is so ridiculous. And, you know, I see that awkwardness everywhere I go. And it's really, but every now and then I'll meet a stranger who just isn't weird with me. But it's rare, like it's the minority when I have an interaction where the person you know is talking to me exactly the same as they would have done 
you know, sort of 10 years ago when I wasn't using any mobility aids. So I think generally, I think the awkwardness and comes from the fact that, you know, the majority we're, re you know, representation of disabled people, yes, it's getting better, but it's still very, very small. The representation that we do get often tends to be wrapped up in pity or wrapped up in, you know, Paralympian inspiration. You will always, always find out if a disabled person is on the telly, in a film, you know, on the news, whatever else, you generally always find out what is there, you know, I'm saying wrong in inverted commas, you know, what's wrong with them. Um, you know, so we always are still positioned as like medical curiosities, which is why I think a lot of people feel really entitled to approach a disabled person they don't know and ask them, you know, what is wrong with you? Why are you using, like just really personal questions because we've always been seen as medical curiosities. Um, you know, I mean, it's very recent in our times that, you know, disabled people were still kind of hidden away. They just, you know, if, if you weren't in a home, even if you lived in your own home, you were still kind of hidden away. Um, and I think this kind of lack of real, true disability representation and incidental disability as well, like they did it really well in a series called Breaking Bad, where one of the characters in that um, uses crutches because the actor uses crutches in real life, but I don't think it was ever mentioned why and I just thought that was brilliant because you don't need to know like you just you just don't need to know and I think until we have more representation until we have more disabled people in like positions of power as well you know I think the more we have that that's when it starts to become more normalized and until then I think we are just still seen as like I don't know, just this thing that makes people feel very awkward, very uncomfortable. I think a lot of people in general have a hard time with the knowledge that any, you know, everybody's tempor temporarily non-disabled, really. You know, like anybody could become disabled at any point. And I think some people find that just so uncomfortable. So when they see somebody like me, it's that reminder that <laughs> this could happen to you. Um, and I think people don't know what to say. I think they fear offending and actually you know I just want to be spoken to like I was spoken to before I used a wheelchair that I don't see why that has to change anything. To add a caveat to this I also think that when you flagged about talking to people who are disabled as quote-unquote like they're normal I think it just shows a basic sign of respect why that's not done I'm not really sure. Yeah, well, I think we're seen as lesser, aren't we? You know, disabled people are seen as lesser. So even like sometimes the people who do talk to me, <laughs> they do it in a way that's so sickly nice. And it's like, like literally somebody, I was in a lift once with a friend, we were just out shopping, just having a lovely time. And then this other person in the lift, like just looked at my friend, looked at me and just went, oh, bless and so I yeah it was really gross and and that's pretty mild like I've got friends who are in wheelchairs and like tell me that people will come up and literally pat them on the head like touch them um I can never say this word so you have to forgive me um infantilized can you say that so I can never say treated. that sounds better yeah treated like kids 
Um, and I think this happens especially with people who've got a learning disability and they are just spoken to and patronised and it's, yeah. So even like the people who are being nice, often that niceness is very, um, very false. I, I read something on, on one of my posts, somebody commented the other day and said, you know, I've just started using a wheelchair the last six months and people keep smiling at me all the time but I didn't have that before. And it just made me laugh because it, they do. People will just it, 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 like, just smile at you. And, and somebody else in the comments was like, well, I do that. And the reason I do that is because, you know, disabled people aren't used to being spoken to. So it's a nice thing to do. And it's like, oh gosh, you know, like if you're not somebody that goes around smiling at strange, you know, some people do, some people smile and say hi to everyone great but if you're not doing that for non-disabled people if you're not kind of smiling at every stranger you meet but you're just smiling at the disabled ones like that in itself is just treating you know is othering because it's still treating disabled people in a different way even though you might see it as well I'm being nice what would be the way to approach someone who was a wheelchair user do you think yeah, I think like often, you know, people, people's intentions are good. You know, it's not that every single person, I mean, there are obviously just hateful, ableist people out there. But, you know, a lot of the time people's intentions are good. And But I think it's these kind of presumptions that come with it. So, you know, for example, like I could be perfecting a skill with my wheelchair, like trying to open a door or whatever that skill is. And... I don't necessarily need somebody to come and rush in and save me. So, for example, um, it was like I'd not been using the chair for that long. And it was me and Jace, my other half, me in my wheelchair. And my youngest at the time was in a buggy. And there was a bit of a hill and we were at the bottom of it. And we were just mucking about just trying to work out how to get up this hill. And we were really sort of laughing and we didn't know if to do it like a train. And I'd push the buggy and Jason pushed me. And we were just sort of like this. But then the next minute I was going up the hill and somebody had taken it upon themselves to just grab me and start pushing me up the hill. And then we got to the top and I sort of looked at them. They just grinned at me and walked off like, you know, and it was just and that's that's the thing. There is a lot of times. And when I've spoke to other kind of wheelchair users, that this is quite common where people will just rush in and help without asking. Um, it's that kind of presumption that you can't possibly be able to do it. So I'm going to help you. Um, and that's what I don't like. Like if somebody comes up to me, if they see me in a supermarket and they come up to me and say, do you need a hand? I've got no, you know, obviously, you know, we're not a monolith and different wheelchair users might say different things. But in general, I've got no issue with that because I'm quite, you know, happy to say, no, I'm all right, thanks. Or, oh, actually, yeah, can you grab that for me? Um, it's that kind of rushing in to help without asking first. That's the one that, um, yeah, I'm not so keen on. An able-bodied person, saviour complex almost. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and we know that, um, you know, often sort of non-disabled people who are involved with a disabled person in whatever capacity that is they are hailed as being heroes um you know jace is hailed as being a hero oh he deserves a medal for being with you like oh fuck off you know we very much take care of each other and of course he does more of the physical stuff um but i'm much better with like more of the emotional and the mental load and you know we are just often viewed as people with oh you know you've got broken bodies you just must be just this poor tragic thing who's not capable of anything um yeah and you need a, a non-disabled person to come and save you do you think that there's also a potential 
gender bias there? Do you think that there's possibly sexism maybe? Yeah, I think it definitely runs through it. So especially when it comes to other people looking at our relationship, because I think people have this idea of what, um, you know, a gender typical relationship looks like and gender roles. And this is what the man does. And this is what the woman does. Um, And I sort of wonder if it was the other way around, you know, if it was Jace in the wheelchair um, and I was the non-disabled one, would I be praised as a hero as much, you know, would, because it's almost like in society, that very sort of gender typical thing that the women are the ones who do the caring and all the caring tasks. Um, so I do, I do definitely think there are sort of aspects of that um, going on, definitely. But could there potentially be a gender barrier? So I don't, uh, so to use kind of like the concept of like the pay gap, for example, when it comes to disability, it's just through interviewing people for this podcast, um, the majority of who who are female have come and they've they've come on and they've said that in terms of their experience, just generally, the thing that runs through all of them, regardless of what disability they have, it's always got an undercurrent of kind of like a systemic bias in that sense. Yeah, and, and I think like when you look at things like, and this is why it's frustrating when disability is left out of conversations within kind of, um, you know, intersectional feminism and stuff like that, when disability gets left out, because if we look at, you know, sexual violence, um, domestic abuse and all of that, the rates for disabled women are so high, because obviously, you know, a lot of disabled people are quite vulnerable. in those kind of uh, situations, I mean, and even down to the benefit systems. So if you are a disabled woman, for example, who is living on their own, who receives um, state benefits, and then you meet somebody and you move in with them, you will lose the majority of it. So this is really kind of contributes to the kind of domestic violence rates as well, because suddenly, you know, you have disabled women who are trapped in these situations who can't then financially support themselves to be able to get out. And speaking to people such as Kathy Ray, for example, we have sometimes talked about the concept of disabled joy, which I believe you've posted about previously, and it's cropped up on my Instagram feed at various times. What would be your version of that? I love Kathy. Um, so my version of disabled joy, I think it's, oh God, you know, it's when I feel, I kind of liken it to this kind of good version of disabled, which is how I identify. So my good version of disabled is myself, it's my community, it's, you know, disabled culture and art and music and all of this stuff. And then my bad version of disabled is kind of how other people view disability. So I think I find the most disabled joy when I am just within community, when I'm talking to my friends, when we're pulling stuff apart, when we're getting that validation and support from each other. I get disabled joy when I'm in one of like having a rare day where I'm somewhere accessible and I can just enjoy moving around in my wheelchair really freely. Um, You know, experience disabled joy when I've got one of my kids on my lap and we're just kind of bombing down a hill with the wind in our face. And, you know, those are my kind of moments of disabled joy. 